everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with legendary venture capitalist, billionaire, Bitcoin investor, activist, and educator, Tim Draper. Tim Draper helps entrepreneurs drive their visions through funding, education, media, and government reform. He has founded 30-plus Draper Venture Funds and Networks, Draper University, BizWorld, which is an entrepreneurship education platform for kids, and two statewide initiatives to improve governance and education. He has also written How to Be the Startup Hero, a guide for entrepreneurs. We've linked his website in the bio, where founders and business folks can learn more about his platforms. Tim has been in tech from its early days, and many credit him with starting viral marketing. His investments over the last few decades include companies like Baidu, Hotmail, Skype, Tesla, SpaceX, Robinhood, Twitter, Carta, Coinbase, and many, many more. He is also a large holder of Bitcoin, having bought tons of Bitcoin when it was priced below $1,000 in a 2014 auction by the U.S. Marshals. In today's episode, we discuss his bullish views on Bitcoin and the one reason he will never sell, his investments in Robinhood, Carta, and others, his very strong libertarian views and why he believes in minimal government, which ties into his Bitcoin thesis, why the Mt. Gox hack improved his belief in Bitcoin, why women can drive the future of Bitcoin, his thoughts on the current state of China and where it's headed, and a fun rapid-fire round including the first bank branch in space and his updated Bitcoin price target. Let's get started. Hi, Tim, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Great. Thanks, Ryan. This will be fun. I love all the students that come out of there. We've, I know we've backed quite a few, and I have one that works very closely with me, Andy Tang, who's my partner. Fantastic. Good to hear that Wharton is well represented in the Draper universe. So I do want to jump in, of course, just starting with your background. For those that are not familiar, the Draper family, venture capital is a full family affair. And, you know, your background just reads like the prestige of prestige. We have, you know, Phillips Academy, Stanford, HBS, etc. But I'd like to get to know a young Tim Draper first. What was your childhood like and, you know, kind of your path to venture capital as a whole? Something I noticed, we were kind of the poor relations in Silicon Valley and the, my cousins were all very wealthy because they were from Pittsburgh and that was the big time for the oil business. So I'm always aware that other geographic areas can pop up and make uh, people a fortune. But no, I, I had a great life. I, my mom and dad uh, were amazing role models. Mom used to, we'd get to a new location and my mom would just say, go explore. I don't know whether she was trying to get rid of me or she was just wanted me to experience the world. And my dad was a very hardworking business man, loved what he did. And I think that that transferred through where we, if, if he loved what he did, I thought, well, gee, maybe I should do that and I'll love what I do. And all of my children seem to love what they do. Or three of them, have be- three of the four have become venture capitalists. Jesse runs something called Halogen Ventures, only backing women. And Adam backs sci-fi. Adam just had a big IPO with Coinbase. 
he was a seed investor. And then Billy runs Path Ventures, and and that's generally focused on the consumer and uh, consumer technology. So yeah, we've had it in our blood. My grandfather was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist. I kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I realized that I my personality was more suited toward doing a, a number of different things rather than throwing myself completely into one. Although I guess I've thrown myself completely into venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess eventually you do specialize. And then the other things that I remember are that we had a very free life and freedom makes a big difference all the way through the world's wherever they are, the free countries are the ones that create wealth for their people. The socialist dictatorships don't. And the perfect example is Korea. They drew that line, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea after the war. And in the North, they followed Marxism. They had a socialist economy. They had socialist dictatorship. Government controlled everything from what you did with your life to how much food you got and whatever else. And in the South, they created a free market system, a democracy, a capitalistic society. And here we are 70 years later, and the people in the South, the South Koreans, now make 460 times what the average North Korean makes. And uh, and they're now four inches taller. It's been 70 years and it's been four or five generations. Now their free country is now four inches taller than the government controlled country. And so whenever the government tells you to do something, I want you to hesitate. Say, wait a second, is this a temporary thing or a permanent thing? If it's a permanent thing, mm -hmm. fight it with every bone in your body. And then, and the uh, woman that I met I won this Freedom Award with this woman from uh, North Korea who had escaped North Korea. And she said, she's about four foot two. Oh and she God. looked up at me, and I'm about six foot four. <laughs> and she said, if I had lived in a free country, I'd be looking you eye to eye. <laughs> My lunch was made up of 24 kernels of corn. And that's all the government gave me. And that's all I was able to eat for my lunch. And she's tough little pistol. And then I also went to Cuba and I realized that this socialist dictatorship, any socialism, any government control is just bad for a society. And the freer the country, the better. And then the more trusting the country, the better. Anyway, that was long-winded <laughs> answer to a very short question. No, absolutely. So a couple follow-up questions. But first, I do want to get to the, I mean, at this point, the concept, the idea of China. So China is a place that you have done a lot of business in, in your career. Starting in about 2001, you bought a major stake in Baidu. How has business evolved in China over the last two decades in your eyes? And what do you think about the future of China as a country that is really straddling this extreme, you know, capitalism and incredible growth, but a very, very tight-knit control by the CCP? Yeah, those are two different time frames. Um, you know, when I first went to China, my dad met with Deng Xiaoping. My dad was at the UN Development Program. And the Chinese were very poor people. I drove 
in the only car I could see anywhere on the highway, uh, on the only highway. Wow. To the only uh, international hotel called the Friendship Hotel. Mm -hmm. And everybody else was, you know, out on the road with bikes or with uh, these Chinese hats selling rice for for fruit or whatever. And China had then Deng Xiaoping said, we're going to create a market system here and some of us will be rich first. And it won't be Chinese controlled. We are going to allow companies to start their businesses with Cayman, just with have, having a Chinese subsidiary, whatever. We want this thing to grow. And I remember talking to the Minister of Economics of China, and I say, he said, come invest in China. And I said, why would I invest in your country? And he said, oh, it's a big country, lots of people. And I said, yeah, but I know a guy who created a Chinese chocolate company, and he built it to $90 million in revenues, and you guys just took it. It, was, it became nationalized. So why would I start a business that I, I'm just going to hand over to you? And he thought about it. Then, I, then he said, well, what would you recommend? And I said, look, if you want foreign money here, Anybody who invests any money or any time in your country, you should do everything you can to make sure that they're successful. And you should make sure that they're able to repatriate their money, bring it back, tell all their friends, and then all their friends are going to come out here and invest in China. And that pretty much happened. We were very early. We jumped in uh, when China decided they were going to open up. And we backed Baidu, but we, uh, I also met Jack Ma, so I missed that one. <laughs> and I met Tony Ma, so I missed that one. Yeah. So I missed two out of the three, so that's not very good. But I <laughs> did catch Baidu, and Robin Lee very much impressed me, and we, we did very well with that. Still one of the best investments we've ever made. Well, it's true. Once we did Baidu, and then they went public, all of my venture capital friends came flooding into China. And it was great for everybody for a long period of time. And then they got a dictator ruler. They went socialist. I don't know what you call it, communist socialist, but it's government control. And when you go government control, your economy can ride the capitalistic system for a while, and then it goes flatline. So I suspect over the next, they're going to have 10 really good years, and then they're going to go flatline from here, where I've already noticed that the entrepreneurs in China are very depressed. Because anything they build, the government just says, what's yours is now mine. And think about that. That's what happens in all those African countries. And so many of these African countries have dictators who just wait until somebody's built something, and then they say, I'm taking that. And if that happens, then there's no trust in the system. So there's no incentive to build anything of value. Same thing happens in Argentina and Venezuela and, and Nigeria now because they have currencies that just drop 70% a year. And if it drops 70% a year, you, you think, well, I build something of value, but I'm going to lose 70% of it every year. Why would I do this? And so people live for the day a little bit in Nigeria and Venezuela and Argentina. It's just there's no real incentive to build something of long standing value. And sometimes it's hard for Americans 
to really understand that because we have a very trusted government and we have freedom. And I think we're, we're, it's interesting, they're starting to print more money. So we're now moving to Bitcoin as the store of value that we want. So a lot of people are building their businesses to accumulate Bitcoin rather than accumulate dollars because the government has printed so many dollars that they don't trust it quite as much as they do Bitcoin. So Another long-winded answer to a short question. What else? No, these are fan- <laughs> no, these are fantastic, Tim. Keep them coming. I, I hate the guests that give me the thirty-second to one-minute uh, little spiel and onward. It makes my job easier. So now, next question. I mean, on that point of Bitcoin, I have a quote from you from a previous podcast where you said, you know, Bitcoin is a bit of a hedge against bad governing, among other things. You were a pretty early adopter of Bitcoin back in 2014. You bought a huge number, and I think it was an IRS or FBI auction. What got you so interested in Bitcoin and you know this entire theory of decentralization? Well, I actually was interested in digital money many, many years before. In 2002, there was a Korean guy who came and talked to me, and he said, you know, everybody's playing this game lineage in Korea and about half the population. And he said, he said, so I have to pay a guy to be my avatar during the day when I'm at work. And uh, then he goes, my son wanted a sword for his birthday and it cost $40. And I thought well, that was a non sequitur. And he said, no, this is a sword that's pixels on the screen. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it just lit up for me. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're taking fiat money and paying for a crypto item. And that was the beginning where I started to think, okay, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be crypto money. There's going to be some sort of money. And I thought it would be games and then it would be game to game, some transference of dollars or some sort of money from game to game. But then when Bitcoin showed up, I just jumped on it right away. And I just thought, this is fantastic. It's so much better. And it allows people to have money that can help them create value in their virtual world. And I got very excited. And then Mt. Gox disappeared the money. And Mt. Gox was the biggest Bitcoin trading system in the world. And I thought, too bad. That was really an exciting experiment. That must be the end of Bitcoin. And what happened was Bitcoin only dropped about four. 15% in value that day. Now, I lost my Bitcoin in that system somehow, but it dropped 15%. And I thought, huh, somebody, people really need this. I thought it was going to go to zero. I thought people really need this. This is really important. And so I really dug in and I started studying how Bitcoin was being used. And they were using it for remittance. They were using it for micropayments. They were using it for so many different things, store of value, so many different things. I thought, wow. And the unbanked, oh my God, they all wanted it. And the people in Venezuela, they wanted it because they they needed something that could retain their store of value. And they knew there would only be 21 million Bitcoin forever. So I realized that was a big deal. And I bought some along the way a little bit. And then when the U.S. Marshal's office came, and I think that was 2013, I was the only one who entered the auction and bid over market. Everybody around me was bidding under market. And 
What I didn't realize, there were nine lots. I was hoping to get one or two. What I didn't realize was I was going to get all nine. And I got all nine. So I was pretty overextended in Bitcoin. And then I started to look pretty silly when Bitcoin went from where I bid on it, when I bought it, 632, down to about 180. And then there was another auction. I bought a little bit of that, but not the whole thing. I was pretty much out. And then it started creeping back. And when it was about 300, maybe, I got on air with Fox News and I said, I predict Bitcoin will hit 10,000 within three years. And the weirdest thing happened. It hit 10,000 almost exactly three years to the day from when I made that prediction. And then it went well beyond it and came back down. And then it was about 4,000. And I had a huge party where I predicted and we gave out T-shirts that said 250K by 2022 or 2023. And Bitcoin was at about 4,000. And people thought I was a little nutty there too. But now we're hitting 55, 60,000. And I think they're thinking I'm not quite as nutty as I seemed in the, at the beginning. I'm wearing my Bitcoin tie. So yeah, I got in early and have really had the wild ride. And you could argue that Bitcoin's very volatile. But the way I look at it is one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. It's all these other currencies that are very volatile as they slowly disappear from use. And people have asked me, well, when are you going to sell your Bitcoin? And I look at them and say, into what? Why would I ever sell the currency of the future for the currency of the past? I mean, that would be like saying, I'm going to take dollars and turn them into Confederate dollars. Or I'm going to take euros and turn them into drachma or French francs. You don't want to do that because those were spiraling down currencies. They were inflation-driven spiraling currencies. And so now I look at the world and I think, wow, this is just better currency. It banks the unbanked. Banked. It uh, allows people to send money anywhere in the world. It is a great store of value. It allows like the movie company guys who make movies to pay all 15,000 of those people who had something to do with the Star Wars or whatever, just by dropping money into a, a Bitcoin wallet. It also is more trustworthy now than even the banks are because it's checked by, what is it, 100, 200,000 miners are watching the blockchain like hawks. And so you never, nobody's ever hacked, you know, knock on wood, nobody's hacked the Bitcoin blockchain. But people are hacking your bank all day long. And Bitcoin is just starting. This is just the beginning. In fact, only one out of 14 Bitcoin wallets is owned by a woman. And so the women who, when the women jump in, they, they control about 80% of the retail spending. That's going to be a major breakthrough for Bitcoin as a currency. Right now, it's a store of value mostly a good system of exchange, a good system for remittance. But eventually, the retailers, we have a company called OpenNode, and they allow a retailer to accept Bitcoin easily. So that money can be paid in Bitcoin. And as a result, the shopper doesn't have to pay 25 to 4% to the bank 
And so the retailer can either give that money back to their customer or save it for themselves or lower their prices or whatever. So this is a magic time for retailers. I think of that. If you suddenly get, you know, you're a retailer and you make very thin mar- margins and you're, you're getting a profit after tax of 5%, all of a sudden you've got another two and a half to 4%. It's like almost doubling your profit. It's a big deal. So I suspect that we're going to see a big movement away from crypto. And once that's the case, there, no one's going to need the dollars. And the retailers will start not accepting the dollars. So that's because their dollars are subject to political whims. It's like, you know, hey, we're going to print it. We're not going to print it. They just printed, what, $4 trillion just dumped on the market. That makes the dollars you had before worth less. That's what happens in inflationary times. So I'm, I'm expecting inflation. But that's where people who own Bitcoin are saying, sure, bring it on, whatever, inflation, we don't care because there are only 21 million Bitcoin and that's the uh, currency we want to operate in. So, Tim, I agree, you know, Bitcoin is fantastic against inflation, or at least that's what the theory says. But many maximalists and you especially have also discussed the governance angle. What about Bitcoin, you know, can be a hedge against government and bad governance? Yeah. It's a great hedge against inflation, and it's also a hedge against bad governments. If a government is doing a bad job or, or printing extra money or absconding with money, it's not trustworthy, anybody who runs their business in Bitcoin will win, will succeed. And governments have to fight for us now. They have to compete for us. They have to be accountable to us or we'll leave. We'll go to another government. We'll pay them our taxes. And so governments are doing their best to attract the startups, to attract the brains, to attract the best and the brightest, to attract the money. And another place China's made a huge mistake was when they they slapped down the Bitcoin exchanges. And when they did that, there was a huge brain drain out to Japan because Japan said, we're going to make Bitcoin a national currency. Just after China said they're going to shut it down. And boy, there was a huge, like all the best entrepreneurs from China fled to Japan. Uh, and that sort of thing is going to happen more and more because we're more mobile than we ever have been before. Yeah. So to your governance and inflation point, I've discussed this in a couple of episodes now, but you know, my family's from Lebanon and most of them are still there. And over the last two years, you know, they've witnessed this massive currency crisis and economic crisis as well as you know, just government and central bank mismanagement and instability. There was a run on the banks and people were only allowed to get you know 50 bucks a day or so. Businesses were shutting down and the currency deflated by 90%. I think you know, Western society sometimes takes our stability for granted and all of our infrastructure. You know, if you're in a developing market, something like Bitcoin or using stable coins can be you know, a better money system in the future. And the record-keeping aspect is compelling, as I know Lebanon was having trouble with that piece as well. Yeah, and the blockchain is uh, keeps perfect records. So, I mean, my dream is to, I'm in the venture capital business, and my dream is to be able to raise a fund completely, put the whole thing into Bitcoin, right, and then invest it in Bitcoin, 
into entrepreneurs, have the entrepreneurs pay their employees and suppliers in Bitcoin and, <laughs> yeah. and keep the whole thing on a smart contract so that it keeps perfect records on the blockchain and so that the LPs, my investors, know exactly what they're getting, when they're getting it. It happens in real time. But also, I can keep track of all the entrepreneurs and how they've been spending their money. And, and I can highlight alerts like saying, you know, what did this, you know, $20,000 go to? And then they'll explain it. And then I'll say, well, you know, you probably, you know, shouldn't do that again. Or, whoa, double down on that. You know, I'll be able to sort of help guide them based on the experiences I've had. And they can sort of figure out how better to manage their money. And we can find alerts like we can say, hey, you're, you're six months from being out of money. Time to get out there. Start raising money. Those kinds of things we think are going to be really helpful as opposed to, you know, occasionally getting a quarterly or annual report from the entrepreneur. We don't really get to see it in real time and how it's happening. And I think that's going to be it. And then I can manage my whole fund without any accounting fees or auditing or wow. bookkeeping or for the good of their people. Absolutely. It's a great point. I honestly haven't thought about that. A fully, you know, tokenized or Bitcoin smart contract driven VC, I think would be a brilliant idea. I absolutely love that. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Right now, the accountants all counted is like you have to convert it from Bitcoin to dollar, back to Bitcoin, back to dollar. And so you end up with twice the, three times the accounting fee. <laughs> they don't, they, they haven't caught up, but they are going to. We have a company called Cryptio that does accounting on the blockchain. And I think that's going to be the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And another company. And we have a company called OpenNode that allows the retailer to accept Bitcoin. So that's going to be a breakthrough too. Absolutely. And so on this topic of venture capital and investing, next thing I want to cover, pivoting a little bit away from Bitcoin, but not too far, you had invested pretty early on in Robinhood as well as Carta. Can you talk about, you know, starting with Robinhood when you came across this company? I think it's in the theme of your kind of democratizing access to financial services, but what made you, you know, pull the trigger on this commission-free brokerage back in the day? Yeah, it's interesting. They they said, God, we talked to 25 investors and Draper was the only one stupid enough to invest in us. That's what they said. <laughs> very fun. And I did. I saw something very odd happening in the venture capital business. And that was, there was no public market. That was 2001 to 2007 or something. No public market. Horrible time. Sarbanes-Oxley doubled, you know, pounded the dead horse down. All that extra regulation, government control, all that stuff, just like beat the dead horse. So there was no capital available for anything. And they had uh, quintupled or even 10x the amount of money that it would cost for a public company to comply with all the regulations that they've just hit them with. So I started to look around and thought, well, you know, maybe people should be trading these companies privately. Maybe these, and I didn't know how it was going to happen. I tried one thing and it didn't work, but I then thought, okay, I couldn't figure it out, but I know somebody will. And so I backed 
Carta and Carta is the cap table for everybody. And I thought eventually those things, they'll be able to trade private stock that way. It looks like that's starting to happen. I backed Forge. That's the private market stock exchange. Backed Robinhood because it was a way that all the individual investors could start to participate again in the financial accrual and the economic growth of a, of a country. And I backed uh, AngelList. Uh, because they were they were doing it at the seed level, what a lot of people uh, wanted to do, being able to invest in these little startups. I bought Bitcoin because it was a new kind of currency. I backed Robinhood. So we saw financial technology going through a real transformation. We also noticed that banks had really been living high off the hog not really providing very good service for their customers. And they kind of had an oligopoly going. And those are really good places to go be an entrepreneur. So if you're an entrepreneur, I'd, I would look for places where the provider, the country or company are providing bad service at a high cost and that they are working with all the other competitors to kind of, they don't set prices, but it's pretty close. So you see an opportunity like that, you go right after it. So right now, what what would I say have that, what industries have that uh, criteria or that, that happens in those industries? Big pharma, the drug companies, anytime it's big, big banks, big pharma, big three accounting, um, anytime it's big, you've got an oligopoly and it's ripe for an entrepreneur to come break it and transform it and improve it. And what, what happens when an entrepreneur comes in, they not only provide a better service, but it, they force those the people in the oligopoly to also provide a better service. So everybody benefits. And then who else? Insurance. The insurance business is, uh, you know, you see very funny Geico ads and progressive ads and whatever but they're operating in a total oligopoly. And so insurance is going to go through a major transformation next, I think. Absolutely. And so, Tim, I think in closing, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about 10 or so questions for you, Max, you know, 10 to 15 second response each. But if you have something to say, feel free to go a little bit over. Are you ready? Yeah, fire away. All right. First one. Do you have an updated Bitcoin price target from 250K? No, I stick with one at a time. So I said 10,000 in three years. It hit 10,000 in three years. I said 250K by 2022 or the beginning of 2023. That's my prediction. All right. So now another, the impetus for this episode was that you actually came and spoke to a class at Wharton about space, space entrepreneurship and space exploration. Who is the first bank to build a branch in the galaxy? Oh, that's fun. I, you know, probably uh, Coinbase, I, you know, Coinbase, maybe Kraken. I think uh, the galaxy is not going to put up with ah. this uh, fiat tribal governance. They are going to say, we want freedom, we want openness, and we want trust. <laughs> and so I think this is going to be an opportunity for the galaxy to, right. to go well beyond that. You know, 
I think there are going to be some incredibly successful countries that are started either 11 miles offshore or up in space uh, that are not tied to any geographic borders. And they're going to force the geographic bordered countries to start performing better. We have the internet and all that. Oh, sorry. This is a rapid fire question. Oh, what's the next question? <laughs> oh, I was enjoying it, but all right, we'll, we'll cut it. How about a big pivot then? Investor you most admire? You know, entrepreneur I most admire is still probably Steve Jobs, but Elon Musk is a very close second. And I kind of look at them as the investor I most admire too, because they're, they went all in. <laughs> you know, there it is. And they just went all in and they, and Steve Jobs just said one button, one button. Right. And, uh, Elon, uh, said, Hey, we're, we're going to Mars. We're going to Mars. And plenty of people were angry with them or, or they laughed at them or whatever. But these guys, they had true conviction and they, they made something really incredible happen. And so I would say they are the best investors in the world. All right. Next up, what is the craziest idea you've ever been pitched? Well, there was <laughs> there was a very early in my career, there was a guy with a spaceship and he took a picture of himself in the spaceship. I mean, it was like a flying saucer. But, you know, that was back when you got photographs, you know, actual photographs out of uh, silver nitrate. Well, he had erased his legs. He was standing up holding this thing and he had erased his legs. Anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. But the mo, you know, a lot of the wild ones we back because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the outlier. We're looking for somebody who's got, who's bold enough to say something that people will laugh at. Somebody who's willing to take a risk. I love that. And then next one, what is the country with the largest GDP in 20 years? You know, it's interesting. I, I would say that China catches up to the U.S. in 10 years. But after that, if they've still got this socialist dictator, they're going to go flatline and the U.S. will rise back ahead. But if we're talking about GDP per capita, I think you're going to see a rise in the, uh, you know, all the countries that are that are open and free. And I would say that that's like Malta. And the ones who are opening up, like Estonia, and Estonia is very ad advanced in, it, in its thinking. Switzerland, maybe Japan. I think that the uh, all that nationalism and all that stuff that came with the COVID virus is very much temporary. And it's a little bit the last roar of the dying lion. All of them, anybody who is a government employee or a government politician or a dictator, they all know that this gig is up. The tribalism is gone and we're a global society and they've got to fight, uh, compete for their people. They have to try and provide really good service for the, the money they're taking away from their people. And so I'm very optimistic that we're going to have a marketplace for governance. And when we do, it will like on a country by country basis it will uh, create some sort of an equilibrium. Yeah, and I mean, it's a great point, the, the open marketplace almost for governance, especially as switching costs lower. You can now work from anywhere. 
If we have Bitcoin as a global currency, it will be easier to bank and move money around the world. Obviously, you can get anywhere in the world in a day. So the the target is on the back for governments. And we see what a city like Miami can do in just nine months to scare titans like the Bay Area and New York City. All right. Now, last question. Does Tim Draper ever retire? I No, I made a calculation. If I tried to retire right now, it would be another 15 or 20 years of just working out all my old positions. So why bother? And so instead, I'm just going to keep pounding forward and things are going to get even better. So yeah, we're, we're kind of moving forward. I love what I do because it has such a large impact on the world. I, I thought I might get into politics at some point, and then I realized, no, you can actually make a bigger impact on the world by funding these entrepreneurs that go off and do these extraordinary things. Think of what the world would be like without Hotmail. They came up with Hotmail. I came up with the idea of viral marketing, and it's spread around the world, and we can all communicate for free anywhere in the world. I mean, I don't think I could have possibly done anything that would have made any kind of an impact on the world by comparison to that if I had been in politics. So, yeah, I think the um, the business world is really where the, the big impacts come. Absolutely. Well, Tim, on that note, it was fantastic having you on today's episode of the War in Fintech podcast. I want to thank you for coming on. I'm very, very excited to get this episode out to our global audience. Terrific. Yeah, please do. And uh, send me a link. And any entrepreneurs out there, you can come to Draper University. You can get on the show, meet the Drapers, which, and then you can get crowdfunded, which is great fun. And you can raise money from Draper Associates. So we're at draper.vc. Thank you. See you, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.